You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we thank you this morning that the work that was necessary to do for salvation was all done by your Son. And that our salvation is secure in Him and in Him alone. And that the work of your Holy Spirit is ongoing in our lives to sanctify us day by day, grace to grace, so that we might love you more by obeying you more. Because it is our desire and it is our heart. Because even that you have put there. You said you gave us the faith. And so as we look this morning at the rewards that can come and the opportunities we have to, to do things that will honor you and then lay them at your feet. Give us wisdom and give us encourage, give us encouragement to do those things in a manner that will please you and that will spread the word of your church, the word of your gospel on this planet. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. So sometimes we, um, when Christians talk about rewards, we get kind of, we get uncomfortable. Because we shouldn't want to do this for a reward. We should just do it because it's the right thing. It's the same thing that happens in conservative circles. You know, um, and I, I, again, I don't want to get too political here, but, but it seems like on the, in the conservative world, you're expected to give all of your knowledge and ability to the propagation of conservative principles. And you should do it for free because it's the right thing to do. While also trying to earn a living and feed yourself. And so there seems to be this idea sometimes, at least I've seen it, where if a Christian is hopeful of reward, well, that's just not right. But it is right. Because if it wasn't right, the Father wouldn't have put it in his word. But why the motivation to get the reward and what you're going to do with the reward, those are two so important things. The motivation should be because of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the purpose is to give him glory. And as the elders, it says in the book of Revelation, to lay them at at his feet. And so as we work through this section and continue to finish up this section about the quality of your work and the rewards that come, let's always remember that (coughs) rewards are a good thing. And uh, the Father has a purpose for them in your life. Are you encouraged when you do something right? The three things, the three times I've done something right in my life were really encouraging. I don't remember the first two. But the encouragement comes from realizing that God built that into you. Any gift we have, any ability we have has come to us from either the training of others or a direct gift from God. And so as we work for these rewards and as we talk about them, it's with that in mind that rewards come from the hand of God. They come from the hand of the good giver of rewards, of gifts. And they're for his purpose, for his glory. Those are the important things to remember. So let's, let's go ahead and read chapter 3 again. I'd like, to, I'd like to just read the whole chapter again. Continue to, to immerse ourselves in the context and the, the spread of what Paul is, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, is doing in this section. where he's. <laughs> we're going to talk about foundations, too. And Paul is setting up a basis for the further discussion of 
of um, correction and discipline that is coming in the book of First Corinthians. Um, the hammers, the shoes about to dro- fall. The shoes about to drop. The hammers about to fall. Um, and he talks about it, whether it would be with a whip or gentleness. But we'll see that as we go through here. First Corinthians chapter three. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am a Paul, and another, I am a Paulist, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as our Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation gold with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. For if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Last week we finished on verse 13. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. We talked about the fact that this relates to the judgment of of Great and great and small at the bema seat of Christ. The person will not be tested. The person will not be tested. His work will be tested. The person's salvation, your salvation, the Corinthian salvation, Paul reminds them, it rests on the finished work of Jesus Christ. But the things that we do after that salvation, the demonstration of our Christianity, the demonstration of our belief, the demonstration of our love, those will be tested. And the work of each believer will be tested. But again, the quantity and the quality, the quality, not the quantity, will be tested. Although I would suggest that quantity itself is important as well. The more you can do for the Lord, is not that a good thing? The more you can do for, for the Lord out of love in your heart, the love for what he has done for you, it is a good thing. 
So verse 14, I'm going to read 13. And each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. There's the, the smelter that renders the gold valuable, brings it out of the ore, gets rid of the dross and the, uh, the contaminants, and produces out of fire something that is well useful, much useful, very useful, and valuable. And in the same way, your work, as God smelts it in the fire of life experiences, of difficulties, out of that comes the gold of your faith that is revealed by fire. Once the fire comes and the work is tested, everything of value will remain and everything that was done in the flesh will burn up. Just as there were two construction components, one set that would last and one set that would not last, gold, silver, precious stones, as opposed to wood, hay, and straw. So there are, and this is not a, the analogy is, it's interesting to me how, how the writers of Scripture set up analogies. They were imperfect men. Scripture is perfect. But when they set up analogies, it's like he sets up an analogy of two competing interests here, and then he introduces a third. Which, it reminds me of the proverb. There are six things that the Lord hates. No, wait. There are seven. When you read it like that, it's really kind of cool. Anyway, and the finger, yeah. No, there's seven. It's like the writer of Scripture went, oh, there's six terrible things. Oh, no, wait a minute. I remember number seven. There's seven. And so Paul sets up an analogy of two points. And then he takes that analogy further with a third point, which we'll look at soon in a, in a verse or two. But the third type would be the type of workman. So there's, let me get back to where I was. So there's two concepts, two construction components. One set that would last, gold, silver, and precious stones. And one set that would not, wood, hay, wood, straw, and, uh, wood, hay, and straw. The first builds a lasting work that you do for the Lord Jesus Christ. The second, not so much. Um, the third type, which we'll see here in a minute, would be the type of workman who actually destroys and tears down the work of God, or at least attempts to. It is possible, now looking at this, it's possible that Paul had in mind Malachi chapter 2. Uh, when he was alluding to this day of the Lord uh, or teaching about this day of the Lord and the, the fire that would that would um, destroy the dross and leave beautiful and complete the finished the work you've done for Jesus Christ that will be of lasting value and import. Um, but who can endure the day of his coming? It says in Malachi chapter three, verses two and three. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. So that you may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Is that a good thing to do with your reward? You bet. You bet. You've been given something and you give it back out of love. And then there's the promise. If your work remains, you will receive a reward. If you exercise the gift or gifts God has given you in a manner that brought hope and help to others, your work will remain. If you preach sound biblical doctrine, you are building with gold 
and your work will remain. If you teach carefully, consistently and biblically, you are building with silver and your work will remain. If you are faithful to your spouse, to your children, loving, caring, you are building with precious stones and your work will remain. We've spoken of the rewards before. They are many, varied and wonderful. I have not seen nor ear heard. And he really means that. This is a beautiful place to live. Is it rewarding to live here on this earth, this planet? To, to, to have the relationships you do, the simple things, um, the equipment that God builds into your life, brings into your life, planting a garden and seeing it actually work and eating of the fruit of your hands and those kinds of things. Isn't it, isn't it wonderful? But well, he's saying, this is nothing like what I've got planned. I can't imagine. And that's actually what it says. I have not seen nor you heard. You can't imagine what God has planned for you. Whether crowns or some of those things that I said that I has not seen or ears or heard, they will be something marvelous that you can then lay back at the foot of God at his throne. And as a side note, this section is often used in Catholic teaching to promote the idea that, of a place called purgatory. This implies, and I'm going to be very blunt here, this implies that the work of Christ was insufficient. I'm not talking about in Colossians where it says we have to fill up the works of Christ that remain. That means Christ saved us and he provides salvation for everyone if they but believe. The faith he even, he even gives them. And after that, out of love, you begin to do the things that bring glory to your Father. That is not earning your place in heaven. And that's not saying that what Christ did wasn't enough. And we have to work harder. We have to continue the work so that we can actually be saved. This is a teaching that what Christ did was insufficient and that men must, after this life, go to a place where they can finish the work Christ started. This is blasphemous. All the necessary work to, to effect effect, with the E, salvation, to effect the salvation and sanctification of men was finished on the cross. And the resurrection put its stamp upon it. This is talking about the fire that comes on the day of the Lord, which reveals our work. And whether it was righteous or not, the fire mentioned again was to test the quality of the works, not to purify the believer. When you die, do you really want to go to Kansas? Because that's where purgatory is. Dorothy, not me. So I put a little humor there, but the fact is, it's, it's, it's not just a, a, a wrong idea. It means that what we are teaching, if we teach that, well, what Christ did was good, but it just wasn't quite up to snuff. It wasn't what God really wanted. So I've got to go somewhere where I can finish it. Really? No. What Christ did was perfect and complete. And by faith you have appropriated, and even the faith that you have that appropriated it, it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, was given to you. It was a gift. So the fire tests your work, the fire tests your quality, and what remains becomes the gold that you can lay at the feet of the Father. The silver that you can lay at the feet of the Savior. The precious stones that you can hand to the Holy Spirit for the work that He did in your life. And it's a good thing. Any comments about verse 14? Verse 15. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. 
He's talking about work after salvation. He will be saved, yet so as through fire. Frankly, this scripture, to my mind, more than any, more than many, I should say, disposes of the idea that we can work our way to heaven. Our salvation was secured by the work of Jesus Christ and nothing else. You can't hammer on this too much because it is the main disconnect, even in the church. So many believe that there's a balance. And if, and if you do enough that the balance on the good side overbalances the balance on the bad side, well, then you've got a chance. None of us have any chance at all. Period. Zero. Zip. Nada. The only chance we have is the finished work of Christ. And when we put his work on that balance, it slams to the ground and death is conquered by his work alone. Anything we do after salvation can be done with good or bad motives, unfortunately, because we're human. Those works done righteously will remain, but those done unrighteously will burn up. But the person himself will be saved. So the fact is, what was done by Christ secures heaven, whether the person busies himself after salvation or not. Now, God, would to God that once you're you're saved after salvation, your delight, your gratefulness begins to produce the works. But what, this, what Paul is teaching here is, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, regardless. That almost sounds like a get out of jail free. Okay, well, I know I'm saved. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> Catch 22. Those works are a demonstration, an indication, a litmus test, if you will, that yes, indeed, you were saved. For you, not for God. He knows. Wrong. Here, I'm trying. I, I was going to look up a song that actually, not that we get our theology from songs, but there was a song written about 150 years ago. I think it's called "Only One Life to Offer," and the theology in that song is remarkable. It talks about that very concept that once you're saved, you have rewards that you can give to God. Now, re- rephrase. Your, say your question for me again. Yes, here. Now, all tears will be wiped away in heaven. Somehow, after after you enter heaven and the Bema Seat is done, every one of us is going to be delighted to be there and glad to be there. I'll be cleaning up after Paul's horse. But it will be a delightful cleaning up. It's a bad analogy maybe, but do you get what I'm talking about? Here, though, I I I would proposition to you that a genuine Christian his conscience knows that he is, has or has not been doing works worthy, worthy of the smelter of God. Because the Holy Spirit is in that Christian, guiding and directing, encouraging, reproving, correction, convicting. And so, you're saved. You know when what you've done is a work worthy of the smelter of God that will come through the smelter of God. You know when your attitude is right. You know when your heart is right. And isn't it an interesting thing that when it is, it's a it's a it's an oxymoron or a, a reverse where you feel even more humbled by what God has done for you, not exalted. Well, I sure did a good thing there. No, why would He use me? I'm grateful that He uses me. And so, yes, the regret would be here. 
there would be regrets. And I'm sure all of us have some of those regrets. To know and to do it not, to him it is sin. The Proverbs don't cut any corners. They don't give us, they don't give us sweet platitudes. We were created for good works that God planned in eternity before. Let's be sure we're doing them so that we won't just be saved like fire, so as through fire. And there's some interesting analogies in Scripture. Um, so this Scripture, to my mind, dispenses even more with the idea that we do things to save ourselves. Because even the works we do afterwards, if we don't do the right ones to save ourselves, God says, if I saved you, those will burn up, but you will be saved. It was His work and His work alone that secured our salvation. After that, we do the things that He, con- he, he designed for us to do. <clears throat> so, works done righteously will, be, will remain. Works done unrighteously will burn up. But the person himself will be saved. So, the fact is, what was done by Christ secures heaven, whether the person so secured does anything or not as far as works are concerned. There will be some who will enter heaven with the smell of fire on their clothes. Um, and have mercy on some, it says in Jude 1, 22 and 23, which is interesting because Jude only has one chapter. Um, Save others, snatching them out of the fire and on, and, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garments polluted by the flesh. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. When we were, when we moved, one time when we were moving, we had a whole bunch of stuff in the back of a trailer. And just south of Coeur d'Alene, the trailer flopped over on the highway and um, scraped on the pavement and started a fire. And, and we were rednecks. Guess what we had in cans on top of that trailer? Gasoline. You know, you might run out of gas somewhere on the highway. Now you got 10 gallons of gas. Well, guess what that gas? Holy mackerel, you should have seen that fire. It actually burned a hole in the pavement. I thought we were going to have to pay for it. Um, but... The analogy was, we put the fire out, my dad, my mother's hair caught on fire, and I put that out. (laughs) I wish we had a video of this. You know, we could win America's stupidest home video. America's most redneck home video. Um, But after the fire was all over, and everything was done, you could still smell the fire on her and on dad. Dad burned his hands really bad, trying to get the tarp off the truck, because the truck caught on fire too. We couldn't get it loose. (laughs) He... He used for safety chains. Uh, you could have towed a tree out of cut woods with him. Safety chains. We couldn't break them. You couldn't get between the pickup and the trailer because it was so hot. So he'd back it up. He'd smack it. Okay, that's not worth. The, that's not part of the analogy. Anyway, it was it was just a comedy of errors. The Keystone razors, yeah. But what I was getting at was an hour, hours after that, I could smell the fire in my mother's clothing because it, it caught her collar on fire. I got that out too, and. Uh, Dad's clothes smelled like fire. And so that's what this is talking about. There's going to be some in heaven who are going to have the smell of fire on them. But aren't we grateful that it was the work of Christ that secured them? Because if we had to do it, who would make it? Raise your hand. Good. You passed the test. Uh, and there will be some whose works will be completely consumed, but they themselves will be saved. And, but there will be no more tears for them just as certainly as any who enter heaven by the good grace of God. Every one of us who enters heaven, enters heaven because of the work of God. And once the judging is done, and the, the, the new, all the newness comes, the new heavens, the new earth, all the things that are talked about in Revelation, 
there will be no more tears. We will all just be so glad to be there and we have so much to do. Um, Remember the Colossians, because they were being defrauded, it said, at the time of their prizes because they delighted in methods of worship that have no place in the kingdom of God. Um, That verse is Colossians 2.18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Don't let yourself be defrauded here. Stay with Scripture. Don't let yourself be defrauded by being taking your stand on anything but what is revealed in the Word of God. So, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. He himself will be saved, yet so, as through fire. In no uncertain terms, Paul is telling us that it is the work of Christ that secures your salvation alone. But after that, you get to do the things that will bring reward, that were planned for you in eternity past. And they're good things, they're wonderful things that God has designed for you to do that will create gold you can lay at His feet. Any comments about verse 15? You'll be delighted. You'll, you'll be delighted. There's a, um, and not only that, but, but stop and think about it. Our gifts to the Creator of the universe the unbelievably and unimaginable sovereign God of all creation, and creation is just a piece of his existence, why would he be delighted at all? But what he's telling us is that when we lay them at his feet, he's going to say, well done. I know when my dad said that to me, I got just this, it was just cool that my dad would say that. Well done. Good job, young man. Uh, and the, the king of creation is going to look you right in the eye and he's going to say, well done good and faithful servant. Enter into the reward that has been prepared for you. Another reward? Really? I get all excited about this stuff. Verse 16. Do you know, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, right after this, okay, rewards, burn up, doing things right, doing things wrong. Do, do you know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? It's like he has to remind them, oh, by the way, when you trusted Christ, the Spirit of God came to dwell in you. He's inside. He's in, he's in your heart. How are you living? How, how is that working out? Here Paul begins the short discussion of the third type of person that I alluded to in verse 14. And we'll see that in the next verse. <clears throat> he's reminding the Corinthians that the church of God, the called out ones, the saints, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and therefore are the temple of the living God. Now, especially... In those days, all of them would have got this because there was temples everywhere. Whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, they understood the concept of the temple, the inner sanctum of the temple, which we'll talk about here in a minute. The inner area where only the God dwelt or God himself in the Jewish, in the Israelite temple. And then there's the outer portion. And there's another word for that, which has to do with the grounds of the temple and the, the gardens around it and the wall and the housing that held the Levites or whichever the Temple prostitutes in, Aphrod- in Aphrodite's temple. So there's two words. There's the temple proper, the main sanctuary where God himself resides. And then there's the outer area. And that's the word Paul uses. He uses the word that has to do with um, where God himself is. So he doesn't use the grounds, the general term. He's saying, don't you, Corinthians, know that you are the sanctuary of God? You're a body. You're, you're, you are a temple of the living God. Very important. 
So and, and this is evident. So he's talking about both individuals and the church at large. This is evident from the use of the plural you. In the King James, the word is ye. And that's one of the things I always learned when I was studying scripture early on 20, 30 years ago, that um, you meant you singular in the King James. Ye meant ye, you plural. And that would be the word that would used here. <clears throat> you. And in the South, it's use ones. Use all. So he's calling all the saints are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the temple of living God. It's evident from the plural you. In one sense, again, the church universal, all of the believers are the great temple of God. But in another sense, each individual believer, each individual Corinthian, each individual person is a temple of God. So, and again, I, I mentioned it's noteworthy that when the New Testament writers spoke of the temple of God being Christians, they spoke of the general grounds of the temple. Here, Paul distinguishes between the temple itself and the surrounding grounds. He's talking about the inner sanctum where God dwells. And so I, I put some of the definitions up there. Here's the other verse. Here's, let me go back. Neos, temple of Jerusalem, but only the sacred edifice or any heathen temple or shrine, but metaphorically the spiritual temple consisting of the saints of all ages joined together and it, definition of that part of the temple where God himself resides as opposed to the grounds used at the temple of Artemis, used at the temple of Jerusalem, uh, the whole building, specifically the outer courts open to other worshipers. So places where people could go who may or may not have had a relationship with the living God. But inside the temple sanctuary itself is what it's talking about here. And so then in verse 17, and I'll ask if you have anything about 16 in just a minute because this is so closely related. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. So the word destroy can mean to destroy. It can mean to corrupt, to cause to waste away to spoil, to ruin. Um, you can destroy food by leaving it out of your refrigerator, can you not? And you can make it unusable, corrupted, perished, if you will. But you can also toss it in your hearth, in your fireplace, and literally burn it up. And that's another word of destroying. By the way, when you say destroy, as an aside, that doesn't mean it ceases to exist. It's annihilated in its original intent for use. So the food was designed for you to consume and nutritionally benefit your body. When you destroy it, it can no longer be put to its proper use. Same thing with Christians. Um, they, you can destroy someone by causing them or being, being part of what causes them to go to hell. They don't cease to exist. They are put to a different use than their intended use. God intended for them to be saved in the great sense of the word in Titus. But they're not annihilated. They don't cease to exist as many theologies teach, especially the one that comes to mind is the Jehovah's Witnesses. They teach that death destroys, annihilates you. When you break a light bulb, it's no longer useful for what it was intended for, to give light. But it is, is it annihilated in the sense that it ceases to exist? No. And that's what God's talking about here. So, 
If a man destroys the temple of God, the word Paul used has the meaning of to corrupt or defile. It can mean to harm. It can mean harm to the destruction of someone or it can mean to move them away from properly following the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can destroy a Christian. You can you can harm a Christian in this way by subjecting them to false teaching. You subject them to false teaching. They no longer they are not pursuing a path that will yield what they were intended to be in God's great economy, if you will. Not that God is surprised by that or worried about that. I don't want to indicate that that he doesn't know what's going on. Of course not. Um, It can refer to someone who, by their false teaching, corrupts and therefore destroys the church of God. This has application to an entire body of believers or to a single individual believer. That is why those who are given the responsibility of teaching, it's a terrifying responsibility. And I am grateful for your inquisitive and questioning and, and Berean attitudes because we all need to be kept on the straight and narrow by the work of the Holy Spirit in amongst among us as we, as we teach one another. So, so in, in this session, this session, in this section, essentially verses 12 through 17, we are introduced to the three types of people that apparently populated the Christian church. They were all builders. Wise builder. Everybody knows which one, what materials he was using or she was using. Gold, silver, and precious stones. The unwise builder, for our purposes, the person using wood, hay, and stubble, uh, straw. And the foolish builder who injures or destroys the building. The other thing is, we also see into the heart of God. In, uh, as he tells us through the Apostle Paul, tells the Corinthians through the Apostle Paul, how important the church is to him. How important individual believers. He says, he says in this verse, if a man destroys the temple of God, I will have aught with him. He will be in trouble. No, he says, I will destroy him. That's how important the temple of God is. The individual temple of God. You, all of us here. Those who have the Holy Spirit. He tells Paul and he tells the Corinthians and he tells us through that. Just how important we are to him. Use the foundation properly. Build wisely and carefully. Do not destroy my work, says the Lord. So now, this lays the foundation, no pun intended, for the later discipline in this epistle, especially the discipline that comes in chapter 5. Building carelessly on the foundation, some of the believers in Corinth had gone through some incredibly wrong Conclusions that come to some incredibly wrong conclusions about how to deal with sin. When there's no balance, when there's no scriptural balance in the life of someone who's dealing with sin in other people's lives, they will generally swing to one of two, two extremes. They'll shoot them or they'll excuse them. Shooting in a pun, figuratively, biblically shoot them. They'll cut them off, try to, try to harm them themselves. Or they'll ignore it. One of those two extremes or some variation. Biblical balance dictates how to deal with that. And we're going to see in chapter 5 where these Corinthians had swung to the extreme of excusing some of the worst immoralities. Paul tells them how to deal with it properly. Now, do you think that has application today? Do we excuse things that are just really obviously wrong? That, I mean, you have to, I know this is being recorded. We'll just leave it at that. 
They're really obviously wrong, unbiblical, and even the church excuses them. Paul is going to give us uh, some, some wise balance when we get to chapter 5. Well, as we go. So, but here he starts with, when we use the wisdom of the world, our response to sin will be unbalanced. It will be one extreme or the other, or some variation of that. So he says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. So we're going to talk about a right view of ourselves, a right view of others, and a right view of God. He's going to finish up this chapter with that. We must have a right view of ourselves. The underlying problem at Corinth is one that Paul continually comes back to as he sets up different passages for instruction or correction. That underlying problem is one of pride and self-aggrandizement, either through myself or through being aligned with others who are important. The Corinthians were lying to themselves, thinking that their man's wisdom was what was needed to live a godly life. Paul says that they were deceived, and then in order to have a proper, proper biblical understanding, they must become foolish according to the wisdom of the world, according to the wisdom of the age, in order for them to actually become wise. This would be biblically wise. He's warning the Corinthians, and to us, he's warning us by extension, that all of us must carefully and thoughtfully think about who we are and what we are in relationship to God and to Scripture. We are never in more trouble than when we think too highly of ourselves. There needs to be a balance. We cannot evince a false humility, and I know all of us have done that, I know I've done it, and shut down any praise that people will have for us. But we must be fully aware that every gift or strength we have was given to us by God or built into us by others, by God's grace. The word Paul used for deceived is a Greek word that has the idea of missing the reality of something because we bit on a bait that hid what was actually happening. Missing the reality of something. And that bait is the deception of our own ability and just how important we are. So that's why I have the little picture of the fish with the, the fly down there. <laughs> you ever stop and think about how dumb that fish must be? We do the same thing. We do the same thing. People can set us up with bait about how wonderful we are. You can be drawn into some things that you would never consider by flattery. And so flattery is a dangerous thing. Always tell the truth to one another. Figure out a way to do it kindly, but always tell the truth. It's very important to us that we be perceived as intelligent, wise, up-to-date, current. We, we know what's going on. It's important to people to think, be, be, be thought of that way. Paul is telling the Corinthians that they must understand that when they begin to display the wisdom of God, because of their time spent in Scripture and prayer and in submission to the Holy Spirit, they will be perceived by the world as foolish. It is true then, it is true today. As you become more and more dedicated to the Word of God and to the work that God is doing by you and in your life, you're going to be more and more perceived as foolish by the world. It's a given. But the reverse is true, he says. It's the world that is foolish and that... Corinthians need to believe this. Why? Because he's telling them. Paul continually defends his apostleship throughout his, his epistles, um, reminding them that 
His, his word is the word of God. It came from God through him to them. He's reminding them. He's telling them. And it's from the Holy Spirit. Most of what passes for intellect today is simply copycat spouting of things that people have heard from others. This is one of the reasons why it's so important that each one of us spend time in the Word with the Holy Spirit so that our information, if you will, is firsthand and is a result of the relationship each of us has with the God of the universe. Teachers are good. Teachers are important. But what's more important is your daily relationship with the Father Himself. It is far better for you to get your teaching firsthand have it strengthened and encouraged by teachers. But Paul is telling them they are the temple of the living God and if they are going to appear wise, they must become foolish. And the way we become foolish is by spending time with the creator of the universe. Doesn't that seem like a... The world will call it foolish. But is it? It is not foolish. It is your lifeblood if you will. The first rule we must obey if we're to have the wisdom of God is to recognize and believe a couple of things and then we'll close up with this. All Scripture. All Scripture. We've been over this before, but I'd just like to quickly go over it again. All Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. First things first. All Scripture is inspired by God. Second, following that, we must recognize that Scripture is alive and that it has the ability to get to our very heart and separate gold from dross, separate silver from from waste, separate precious stones from gravel. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our thoughts, our intentions, others as well, but it's more important that we focus on how they are judging our thoughts and our intentions. I can't fix anybody but myself by the grace of God. Would you like to fix some people in your life? Would you like to live their life for them sometimes? Well, maybe not. But you know what I'm getting at. God builds into us, through His Word, the desire and the power, the interest to change what's wrong about us by His Holy Spirit's work in us. That's what He is trying to do. That's what Paul's telling him. These are the principles that will yield a wise person. One whose wisdom comes from their relationship with the Father and their time spent in the Word of God. The Corinthians... We're falling back on the old philosophers and the wisdom of men. And it was a deception. Just as surely as the deception of Satan that Satan used to bring sin into the world. But the positive note is this. Those who will draw close to God, he says, will have him draw close to them. And they will become wise. The hard thing to remember is your wisdom will appear foolish to the world. That's okay. Matter of fact, that's good. There's a, there's a principle in standpoint. If the Daily Beast speaks well of someone, they're probably not good people. If the Daily Beast speaks poorly of someone and actually spells their name right, they're probably good people. 
if the world thinks you're cool and you're okay, you can't use that as a complete litmus test, but it's a good indication that something's up. If the world, especially academic world, thinks you're, you're an idiot, you're probably on the right track. Again, don't use that as your litmus. Use scripture as your litmus. But if the world thinks you're wise, there might be a problem. There probably is a problem. I, I want to say there is, but, you know, it, you may actually run into the two or three times in the, you, in the history of man that the world got something right. Have the wisdom of God. Be not afraid to be thought of as foolish in the world. Be grateful to have that wisdom. Because it is the true wisdom that yields salvation and yields the rewards that come from a life committed to the service of the Savior. It also yields an eternity of blessedness, which is more important, then or now. Then. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to the things that are to come. But here and now, we look forward to the way you by your grace and your kindness, will use us in this world. Help us to always be careful and thoughtful about our position, that everything that, was, that we have done that has been of any lasting value has been a gift of the Father, built into us by the Holy Spirit, given to us by the grace of the Son. And Lord, let us be those kind of people who are maybe not delighted, but understanding when the world thinks we're not wise and grateful when our wisdom reflects the wisdom of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.